Lord, we want to thank you for this time together. And uh, Lord, we just uh, thank you that you're the reason we're here today. If, there, if you hadn't uh, really created us and, and uh, loved us enough to come to this earth to die on the cross for us, uh, if you haven't given us an eternal hope, you know, what would really bring us together like this otherwise? So, Lord, really, when we're together, what we see here today is your hand, your working, and uh, we are here to honor you in our thoughts. We pray that you'd help us to understand how we can better walk the Christian life here in these days uh, as we look forward to the coming day when we will be with you forever. For those of us that are still in that spiritual journey where we're yet to find you as our Savior, Lord, I just pray for them as well that uh, they too would come to understand the hope that they can have through faith in Jesus. And we ask now that you just guide us and lead us. And again, thank you for this time in Jesus' name. You know, the other day I just was uh, kind of thinking back uh, and I re- realized that uh, Julie and I have been in Denver 27 years, it's almost 30 years now this August, and uh, when I put that in perspective, uh, the book of Acts transpired over 30 years. So from the time of Jesus' ascension into heaven to the time when Paul ended up in prison at the end of the book of Acts, a Roman prison, that span was about the same amount of time that we've been here in Denver. And it was a really big 30 years. Because in those 30 years, God really transitioned his plan for man from Old Testament era into a New Testament era. That's why some things in the book of Acts are more descriptive, not prescriptive. They're describing the things, how they were in that transition. Uh, They're not necessarily prescribing the way things need to be now. But in that book, we really see... Paul's four missionary journeys and how he took Christianity from uh, Israel, a Jewish culture, and advanced it into the Gentile world. And in that Gentile world, uh, really it took off and became a world religion because of Paul's journeys. Here, for example, is a map. And this map is a map of Paul's first missionary journey. I won't show his second, third, or fourth journeys, but they're all recorded in the book of Acts in those 30 years. And here on his first missionary you can tell uh, journey, you can tell that he started in Syria, went down to Cyprus, and ended up in what we call today Turkey. And that was his first journey. And he was stoned in one place, and he picked up Timothy at another place. And he's got some amazing stories to tell that are recorded in the book of Acts as he began to establish churches. On this first journey, he established uh, several churches in an area called Galatia. And there's a letter he later wrote to the Galatians. It's one of the New Testament letters. And he started other churches on his second, third, and fourth journey, like in Ephesus. And Ephesus is one of the seven churches that we'll read about in the book of Revelation. But the other six churches were not started by Paul that we read of in the book of Revelation. The other six churches really were a result of the people Paul and others led to Christ, who in turn, their faith sounded forth into the region around them. 
And so people from Ephesus began to uh, reach out to other cities. And before long, we had churches in Smyrna, Pergamon. Uh, Paul started the church in Ephesus. But then from there, their faith sounded forth into Smyrna and Pergamon and Thyatira, Sardis. These are the seven churches of Revelation. Philadelphia, the church we'll look at today, and Laodicea. And so these churches, for some reason, God singled them out. There are many, many churches in this area at this time that Revelation was written. But God had a special message for those seven churches. And it's a message that really relates to Christians throughout time. And we'll see that as well. And, you know, I was trying to get a sense of what this area of Philadelphia looked like. You know, I kind of like to see the terrain. And so I went to Google and I put in maps and then I put in, you know, eastern Turkey. And uh, this, is, uh, this is what I came up with. And, you know, I spent way too much time trying to get a landscape of Philadelphia because uh, you'd be amazed at how long it takes to get away from these turkeys and uh, to get to some geography. Uh, Anyway, I did uh, manage this picture of Ephesus, which is on the coast. And uh, the ancient city of Ephesus is a couple miles inland now. And then this picture is actually very close to where Philadelphia is. It's not quite as pretty as those Mediterranean cities along the coast or the Black Sea cities of Turkey up north. More in this uh, southwestern area is kind of dry, kind of hilly mountainous. There's a nice valley in these mountains, which is where the city of Philadelphia resided. And that's the city today. It's no longer called Philadelphia. It's called Alaseher. I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but it means city of God. It was founded by this man, Attalus II. And uh, he was a man uh, who was given this nickname. I think they call it an agnomen. A nickname is an agnomen that becomes a cognomen. A cognomen is your last name. But Philadelphus describes him. In fact, you know, my name, Kavanaugh, is a... Uh, is an agnomen. It's actually in the Irish language uh, an adjective. Any word ending in A-G-H. A-G-H makes it genitive or possessive. And so what it means is this fellow named Donald McMurrow uh, was so much like St. Quavon, they called him of St. Quavon, whoever that is. So Kavanaugh is actually in the genitive case an adjective describing this guy. Same thing with this Philadelphus. It's not uncommon in the Roman language or either the Greek. He was so known for his love of his brother. Attalus was given the agnomen Philadelphus, which means brotherly love. In fact, you know, the love of a brother, uh, and of course I have a brother, and many of you have brothers. I've got three sons, and it's not always immediately clear how much we love one another. Uh, Sometimes we fight, and sometimes we are in competition. But when push comes to shove, you know, there's something special about brotherly love. In fact, I want to tell you about one example of brotherly love. Uh, And it happens to be this gentleman here, who was the brother that was so beloved, so loved, that his brother probably could have been given the agnomen Philadelphus also. This gentleman looks like some... I don't know, American Hollywood movie star of the 30s, perhaps. 
He's actually from Germany, and he actually was very active uh, fighting against the Nazis. He hated the Nazi regime, and he began to use his influence to save people, much as Schindler did in Schindler's List. This man's name is Adolf, and so he began to go into uh, concentration camps. One day he went into a concentration camp because of his influence. Uh, he requested, he said, look, I need 100 workers. And because of his influence, Adolf was given 100 workers. He drove out of town and let them loose in the woods. He saved hundreds of Jews. But what people don't realize, his brother, who has uh, so much power, was protecting him. His brother was Hermann Goering. And Hermann Goering loved his brother uh, Adolf. Uh, there was times where uh, Adolf went into that concentration camp and he had this letter he wrote up requesting the release and all he did was sign it, Goering. He didn't sign it, Adolf Goering. He just said Goering. And they let him go just like that. And his brother, Herman, knew about this. And his brother was covering for him, even as evil as his brother was. But such was the love between these two brothers. It's kind of an amazing story I just heard of recently, hidden fact of history. But um, Herman, in fact, one day said, look, I can't protect you anymore. You and your wife got to get out of town. And Adolf left. He was thrown in prison for two years because they thought he was a Nazi sympathizer just because of his relationship with Herman. Or, uh, yeah, with Herman. But uh, there was an investigation. He kept the names of the Jews that he had saved. An investigation was conducted. The man that was conducting the, rev the investigation was a Jewish gentleman whose grandfather was one of the guys, coincidentally, that Adolf had, had freed. And so his investigator recommended his release, and he was ultimately released. And by the way, our missionary, Dan Goering, who's been in Germany many years, and I've been there to visit Dan, and we'd go places, and you'd be amazed, even today, Dan would give his name Goering, and people look twice, you know, guys with a name like that. But what most people don't know about our missionary, Dan Green, who's been in Germany 20 years, is that his middle name is Herman. I just thought you'd be interested in knowing that. In any case, uh, that is an amazing story, though, I, of brotherly love, just two opposites even, yet finding a love for each other, a respect for each other. It's an amazing story. And that's kind of the story of this great city of Philadelphia. It had a unique beginning. It had a, a very special name. And it was a location of a very special church. The church at Philadelphia. The church there was the only church of the seven churches in the book of Revelation, the only one that had nothing negative, to, God had nothing negative to say about it. He only commended it. And he only uh, praised this church. Unlike the other churches, some of the other churches had commendations, but they also had warnings. And they also had different points that God was trying to correct and, and, uh, and warn them about. Philadelphia, that was not the case. Again, it was a very, very special church. And in Revelation 119, as John begins to unfold this revelation that the Lord had given him while on the island of Patmos, he opens up with this in chapter 1 with this verse. He was told by the Lord, write therefore, John, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. So in this verse, we have a three-part summary of the entire book 
of Revelation. You know, some of the book of Revelation, like the third part, chapters 4 through 22, those are very difficult. The great, uh, the great um, Christian and leader uh, John Calvin was, uh, was said to have written commentaries on every book of the New Testament except the book of Revelation. His words were, you'd be crazy to write a commentary on the book of Revolution, uh, Revelation. And if anybody wasn't crazy when they began that project, when the, they were done, they would be crazy, is what John Calvin wrote. So it can be challenging. The first part of the book, though, chapter 1, very short, very simple, is simply John letting us know uh, what he has seen, that God had revealed to him while on this uh, island of Patmos in the exile, uh, God had revealed an amazing revelation to him. Part 2, then, is chapters 2 and 3, where he talks about what is now. And what is now, then, related to those seven churches and in chapter 2 and 3, uh, he gives a revelation to each. It's kind of like a letter, really, a love letter of sorts to each of these seven churches from the Lord himself. And then we move into that difficult part, part 3, chapter 4 through 22, which is not the subject of this series. We're really focusing on part 2 of Revelation, the story of the seven churches there, five of which we've already covered. And so the Lord had a special message for what is now for each of those churches. Each of those churches, by the way, were very small churches. I don't know what you think of when you think of the Church of Philadelphia. You may think of some mega church. Or my guess is they weren't any bigger than we are here today, maybe smaller. And one thing's for sure, they didn't meet in the building even. They met in homes. So the church was very small. And yet it was very important to God, so much so he would write this letter. And God, in some of these letters, even refers to individuals in the churches. You know, think of that. You know, God thinks of not just the church, he does think of that, but he also thinks and knows you and me and all the individuals here in our church and in every church in the world. And so we see that he was writing about what is now as a message that those seven churches needed to hear. But I believe it's a message we need to hear too. There's important truths in each of these letters that relates to us today. Some people even say that these letters represent time periods of the last 2,000 years. You know, seven segments of time, church history over the last 2,000 years, each church represents that. And I don't think it's either or, I think it's both and. I think there is a message for those Christians in those days at that time. I think that message is for you and me in these days. And I also think that indeed these letters represent periods of Christian history. Uh, here's a, an example of that. It's also in your handout. These are the seven churches in the order that the letters were written to them. Ephesus would represent the church of the first century because in it, God spoke of the problem that he was having with them and that is that though they had done great things, good things, they had lost their first love. Now that's a message we all need to hear. We talked about that some weeks ago because we can lose our first love for the Lord as well. You know, it goes on though then in the church at Smyrna. If you remember the first 300 years of church history, 
how persecuted the church was. How they would use Christians as torches and throw them into the lions. And for 300 years, the Roman Empire was against the Christians. Well, some would see that as the church at Smyrna because God speaks to them as the persecuted church, the church in Smyrna. Pergamos, some say maybe the 4th or 5th century. This is the time period after Constantine had legalized Christianity. It became one with the state. And so that also created certain problems within the church. They no longer were being persecuted. They were well accepted. But with that acceptance, you know, there came a kind of a nominalism. Where, you know, a laxity began to set in. And again... It's known as the church that needed repenting. And then Thyatira, the 6th through the 15th century, is a time period where the church, uh, up until the Reformation, had certain doctrinal issues. Uh, They actually called it the church with false doctrines. Uh, You know, for example, uh, remember uh, uh, the man who would go around... uh, Europe uh, with a box and uh, asked people to pay indulgences so people could have time off of purgatory, for example. There's probably other doctrines we could mention. But there was an introduction of various doctrines that was shifting the church away from foundation toward the need for reformation. And then, of course, there was a Reformation. But then that followed, 16th, 17th, the church at Sardis, the church that had fallen asleep once again. And for many years, that church had the attitude, hey, we don't have to share our faith with people in India because, hey, God, if he wants them saved, he'll save them. And it took a man to come about in the 18th century, William Carey, the father of the modern missionary movement, who uh, began really 18th through the 20th century, began really relative to church history, a phenomenal movement, a modern missionary movement where much of the world has been reached with the gospel. It's really the mission church, and that's the church of Philadelphia. The church where nothing, nothing bad was said about it. It was highly commended by the Lord. Now, it's not to say there's not first century churches in our century. It's not to say there's not Smyrna's and Pergamoses and Thyatira's and Sardis's. We have all those churches in any century since Christ, and we have them today. But some will present this thought as kind of an overview of generalities that could be suggested. And then the church at Laodicea, the lukewarm church, really the last of the church age, as some call it, right up until the time Christ returns. So some will have this convention of looking at these seven churches. You can be the judge of what you think about that. We're just going to focus on the church of Philadelphia today. And I'd like to just uh, read this letter if I could to you. It doesn't take too long. But I, I wanted to read it on a piece of paper so it seemed like a letter. To the angel of the church of Philadelphia, John, I want you to write. These are the words of him who is holy and true. Who holds the keys of David. What he opens no one can shut. And what he shuts no one can open. I know your deeds. See I have placed before you an open door. An open door of ministry that no one can shut. And know that you have little strength. And that's always the best place to be. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. 
I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Now, most people would think of this as the tribulation. That would fit in with this scheme that we mentioned earlier where Philadelphia is the, the church just prior to Laodicea. And then we come to the end of the age when the tribulation occurs. But this church uh, that... Uh, Philadelphia will be kept from that. True Christians will be kept uh, from those trying times. He goes on, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown because you're going to get a crown. And never again will they leave it. Or the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of God. You know, security was an important thing to these people. One thing about this town of Philadelphia that's not so neat is they uh, suffered terrible earthquakes known throughout history now uh, several big ones that uh, really devastated the town kind of like Nepal I heard they too had a second major earthquake here recently and so security was a big issue for the Philadelphians and God has given him that here in this letter he said I will make a pillar in the temple of my God I will make you that never again will they leave it I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so that's the letter to the Philadelphians that John was instructed to pass on. But I'd like to just key in primarily today on what we can learn from it. And I'd like to just focus primarily today on that introduction. Because I think there's four really important truths in that introduction that I I believe become an anecdote for us when we face loss in our life. And I've been thinking about loss a lot lately. And I'm guessing many of you, to varying degrees, have or will experience loss in your life. I think the Philadelphian church has a lot to teach us about this, primarily from the introduction to the letter. Um, This is one of those letters, again, that you could probably make a series out of this. But think about what is said in this introduction. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is. Now that's the first thing I'd like to just underscore. Him who is. There is a God, number one. That's what this letter is saying. He's holy and he's true. Number two, this God is good. He holds the key of David. David was the Messiah, the king whose lineage would be the messianic lineage uh, from whom all the kings would come. The Messiah would come through David and his reign would be forever. So he's our Lord, in other words. We have a relationship with Jesus. In other words, he knows us. It goes on. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. For God is powerful. God is all powerful. And so when I think of the basis of hope in the midst of loss, I think one, the anecdote to loss is knowing, or the basis of hope is knowing that God is. That God is good. That God is 
powerful that God knows us just as he knew the Philadelphia. He knew their deeds. He's their Lord, our Lord. He knows us. And this to me is the basis of hope, these four points. And God wanted these Philadelphians to have hope. He even told them, look, I'm going to preserve you from the challenges and trials that are going to happen. That's a promise. You're going to have hope in that. You're not going to have to worry about that. I'm going to set you up as a pillar in the temple of God. You don't have to worry about someday having an earthquake come along and removing you. I mean, you guys have hope here. God was giving them tons of hope because of the choices they had made too as a, as a church group there. In fact, you know, it just can't be denied. We are a people standing in need of hope. I love this verse in Romans 15, 4. For everything that was written in the scripture, that was written in the past, it was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. You know, I don't know how anybody would say they don't need hope unless they feel somehow their needs are being met by placing hopes in things that really aren't hope at all. I just don't know. I believe mankind, the human condition, stands in need of hope. And in Ephesians here, Ephesians 1.12 and Ephesians 2.12. 1.12 actually describes followers of Christ as those who have hope. That's kind of the way we're described. Oh, those are the guys that have hope. In order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Of course, you can read that in context. Ephesians 2, on the other hand, kind of describes those that don't know Christ as those without hope. Remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, Foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. You know, there's a famous northern general in World War or Civil War, uh, William Sherman. And, you know, he made this comment that I disagree with. And it's not because I'm a rebel or anything, but I just disagree with it. He said, war is hell. Do you believe that? Because here's my only thought on that. Even in war, there's hope. Even the guys fighting, the rebels in the, in, in the north, they were both, the northerners, southerners, they were both hoping they'd win. <laughs> or for a while there, when it got a little more bleak for the southerners as time went on, they were hoping for good terms of, good terms of concluding the, the war. I mean, even in war, there's hope. But in hell, there is hopelessness. Hell is a place without hope at all. None. Zero. And that's what we're talking about here. How badly we need hope in this world. Not just during our stay on earth, but even forever in eternity, we stand in need of of hope. And boy, without it, we just crumble. But God is so gracious. He's provided it for us. It's not optimistic thinking. It's not wishing for this and wishing for that or hoping someone will do this or hoping that eventually I will accomplish this. Hope is really recognizing what God will do. Hope is recognizing there is a God. He's a good God. He's a powerful God and he knows me. And I can hope in him. 
not just everybody else. He's not just your God. He's my God too. And he's not just my God. He's your God too. And each of us alone will stand before our God and give an account for our lives according to scripture. And that's written to give us hope. Because all scripture is written to give us hope for the future. We definitely stand in need of hope. You know, I want to give you a few examples of that need. Some people, uh, and, and again, in the midst of loss. You know, I, I've been volunteering, uh, gosh, 25 hours a week at a, in my chaplaincy class and uh, at a, at a uh, retirement uh, uh, residence. And uh, there's one guy that I've gotten real close with. His name is Rich. Of course, my mom lives there too, who's here today. And, uh, but Rich Torelli, mom, you know, knows him. And I really like him. He was a, a district attorney for the uh, Jefferson or Kiowa, I don't know, 18th Judicial District, I think. He was a district judge. He did all the cases there is to do, criminal, everything, for his career. And now at 80 years of age, he's retired, but he started the Torelli Foundation. I, re- I volunteer for that also, where we go in. And he was just so upset that, uh, you know, people would bring their kids in for divorces. And they would lawyer up. And the lawyers were in adversarial relations, so it cost so much money. His foundation, and he and I worked together, uh, his foundation is designed to help mediate an agreement with these couples going through divorce. Keep their kids out of it. Keep their costs down. It's all the time that his legal staff provides or spiritual staff that he weds with his legal staff. All the time they provide is free of charge. And so it's just an attempt to make a bad situation as good as possible. Richard, uh, in the last five years, had 17 brain tumors. And he's been able to hit them all with these lasers to, through his skull until one more recently. And now he, this one, you know, the writing's on the wall. And this really great man, who even at 80 is working just full throttle with this foundation to help people. I mean, he can barely walk into that courthouse when we go in there on a monthly basis, Jefferson County Courthouse. But what a great man, working right, as, right up to the end there as best he can, but powerful, intelligent, influential, and now he's losing his life. That's a sense of loss. Think about it, losing your life. There's someone else there uh, that I run into every now and again, fairly young, not much older than me. And uh, the only words he can say, well, the only word he can say is yes, uh, because of a stroke. And, uh, you know, this is a place we'll drive by every day, you know, for years, 25 years I've driven by. And, of course, now with mom there, I stop all the time. But this gentleman is not an independent care as his mom, but uh, he's in this... Uh, care uh, high care medical care end of things and so he uh you'll go up to say hey how you doing john he says yes great day we're having today yes are you a republican yes are you a democrat yes i mean that's all he can say is the word yes but it's kind of funny because after a while he says yes in so many different ways you can carry a conversation on with him Yes, yes, yes. I mean, it's kind of funny how that works. But imagine getting out of bed every day and the only word you can say is yes. That's a loss of health. And there's places filled with people who lost their health. People losing their lives. 
in the hospice down the, in that, over there, there's people losing their lives regularly. People have lost loved ones. You know, my son Ryan's here from Seattle, moving to L.A., but yesterday Ryan and I went to this big World War II, well, military POW missing in action convention thing they have, and 200 families were there. Everybody has lost a relative. My uncle was killed, and they, they contacted me for this. Uh, about a year ago, I gave my DNA. There's some hope of uh, recovering bones in many different places. And so they had this conference here. There's six of them nationwide. Ryan and I went there yesterday. And everybody there uh, stood up. I stood up. Everybody kind of gave a little rendition of their lost one. Uh, in, in POWs or MIAs. My uncle wasn't MIA. He, they found the thing, his body, the things on his body, shipped him back to uh, grandparents. Uh, but uh, we don't know. His body was declared unrecoverable, so we're st- there's still hope. And there's 25,000 unrecoverable bodies. And that rooms around the country are filled, even to this day. Plenty of World War II people, 70 years later, that want those bodies back. They suffered loss, loss of loved ones. There was a guy that came up to Ryan and me, and he was, uh, he's got a little badge. He's a member of this club called uh, World War II uh, Orphan Club. They're the kids whose dads died when they were two months old or eight months. This guy was eight months old. I said, what's it like? You know, I mean, he said, Tim, I just always have wondered and this is the big thing for me. And by the way, this guy's an old man now. He's white-haired and on a cane. You know, like that. He's an orphan, but he's an old orphan. But he said, I always wonder, and you're always left wondering, what would it have been like if my dad didn't die? You know, I, I grew up in Nebraska. Probably would have grown up in California where my dad was from. He said, I'm always wondering, what would it have been like? He has suffered loss. You know that uh, Oklahoma in the Pearl Harbor? Uh, the guy that's in charge of a new project just in the last couple of years, we learned about this. Every one of those bodies in there have not decayed because of the fuel that's mixed in with the water is a preservative. And now the government has plans to excavate all those bodies on the ship Oklahoma in Pearl Harbor. And the guy was explained, he's a doctor in the military, but also forensically trained. They're going to identify every one of those bodies. Why? Because there's a whole bunch of people that have suffered the loss of those loved ones. And even 50, 70 years later, uh, they want those bodies back. You know, there's people that suffer loss. Uh, I was heard this on the radio this past week. It was this little Indian woman. She was a Christian in a Hindu village. And yet, some of her family were Christians. She was a Christian. But she just prayed and prayed that somehow God would raise up one of her kids to follow the Lord. And yet the kids kind of, you know, weren't interested and were involved, excuse me, involved in business or one thing or the other. And uh, she just didn't feel, and then anybody, God would answer. But every day she prayed this prayer, whom have I in heaven but thee? And there's none upon this earth that I desire besides thee. My flesh, my heart will fail. But God is the strength of my soul, my portion forevermore. That was her hope. And she prayed it every day. And one of her kids heard her pray it every day. He was the shy one. The one that she didn't think would ever, you know, would ever really get out there and do much for God. But that shy one is Rabbi Zechariah. It's an amazing story about his mom clung to that hope and prayed and allowed the scripture to teach her. She believed there was a God. She believed that that 
God was good. She believed that that God was powerful. And she believed that that God knew her and could respond to her prayers. You know, there was a gal that I met this past uh, semester, and I've been doing this weekly class. And pretty much in this class, of a counseling kind of class, chaplaincy class, she's in tears every class. And finally, over the course of months, she's finally opened up at 60 years of age. And she said, you know, I guess what I'm just torn up about and struggling with is I'll never get married and I don't have kids. And that's what she was struggling with. And she said, you know, when I was in college, I was a part of a campus ministry, uh, ministry uh, called Navigators. Great group, by the way. They're based in, in Colorado Springs. Julie was a, a part of that for a little while. But she said, we used to call them never daters instead of navigators. I never knew that. But here she was, and she was struggling with bitterness toward the navigators, never daters, because she felt that was the time she should have gotten married, or that was the time she really had her best shot of getting somebody and, and being married and having kids and, and all of that. But because of uh, the organization's policy, she never dated, she moved on, and now at 60, she's just uh, feeling so sad. She's experiencing loss. And she's struggling believing there is a God that's powerful, that knows her, you know, that's good. She struggles with that. But those truths are true whether she believes them or not. And it's um, an issue of trying to help understand. It's almost like you've got to define the enemy. Rule or two is really easy. Sometimes in terrorist things it's tough. But for her, what is the enemy? Is it that she's not going to have posterity? Is it that she's not going to have companionship? Is it bitterness over that she she doesn't have a heart big enough to forgive? I mean, what is the issues that she's facing? And again, counseling is going to help on that. Some of us have suffered loss with decisions we've made. You know, we feel regret. And maybe it was a decision we made 50 years ago, 30 years ago, when we were young people. And we didn't realize then the, even the consequence of the decisions we were making. Do you know the words suicide, homicide, and decide all come from the same root? Sidera, which means to kill. When you make a decision, you've killed a whole bunch of other opportunities. For example, if you marry somebody, you're not going to marry a whole bunch of other people. To use that as an example. At least I hope not. But, uh, but it's true. Even the decisions we make are a form of death that we can experience. A form of loss that we can experience. If, uh, you know, if we don't make them in faith. And so it's interesting. Her decisions have caused her to struggle so much. And we've had to kind of grope and ask questions. And see if we can eventually kind of help her as a group work toward having a grateful heart for what she has and identifying what she's really struggling with and how she can really grapple with loss that she's facing. And I believe that faith in the fact that there is a God, faith in the fact that this is a good God and this God knows me and this God is a powerful God helps me face the loss that I have faced in life. And there's all kinds of losses that, again, we can face. Jobs, finances, regrets. You lose loved ones. 
as I said, even making decisions kills opportunities. But the final verse I'd like to close on was with the hope that Jesus himself had as he looked to the cross. A friend of mine shared this uh, thought with me this week, but I'd like to pass it on to you. Looking to Jesus, the writer of Hebrews writes, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There's a couple thoughts on this. Jesus needed hope also. To face the greatest challenge of his life would require the greatest amount of faith that his God was good, that his God existed, you know, that his God is powerful to raise him from the dead, you know, that his God knew him. I think Jesus believed all four of those points and he could face that great challenge of the cross that great loss that he was going to face. He could face it because of his faith in the principles that we find in the letter to the Philadelphians. And you know what else is kind of intriguing? We'll close on this thought. Who for the joy set before him? You know, think about this. Now, this might work for me. Tim, we're going to send you to the cross, but afterwards you get a bowl of ice cream. Now, that might work for me. I love ice cream. But you know what? That's not going to work for most people. In other words, that joy's got to be pretty special to endure what he endured on the cross. He was with the Father eternity past in blissful paradise. He was about to come to this earth and be separated from his Father in order to pay the sins. At that moment in time, the Father poured his wrath out on Jesus for the sins of the whole world, past, present, future, it wasn't just the physical pain, which was excruciating, well designed by the Romans to maximize pain, but also that spiritual pain that he was going to face. But such was the joy set before him that even that pain was, meant nothing to him for the joy set before him. He sweat drops of blood the night before anticipating this pain. Asking God, I don't want this cup, Lord, if you will pass it over, but your will be done. What allowed him to endure in Gethsemane the night before and on the cross the next day? What allowed him to face those losses? I think it was the hope for the joy that was set before him. A joy that so outweighed any loss he would experience, he could step forward and face those losses. In faith that one day all would be restored. And I believe that's the kind of faith we are going to be tested in. With whatever loss we are facing in our lives. We need to trust that that joy set before us. Will so far outweigh any loss we'll ever experience on this earth. And we can have that faith. When we place that faith in the fact that there is a God. And that this God is a good God, a powerful God who knows us and only wants the best for us. So let's pray and ask God to continue to lead us in this journey. Lord, we just thank you for this time together today. Lord, looking forward to the day when hope and faith aren't even in the dictionary. 
Because that's the day we'll, we'll be seeing you face to face. And the joy spoken of in scripture will be a joy we'll be experiencing. And there will be no faith then. There will be no hope then. But in these days, there is a need for hope. And Lord, we just pray any doubting heart here would be strengthened, expanded to grip the truths that you wrote to the Philadelphians in the introduction to this letter. Lord, help us believe these truths and apply them to our losses. In Jesus' name, amen.